Okay, hi everybody, this is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And we're here to talk about Rule One Style Investing, which is brought to us by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and guys like David Einhorn and Eddie Lampert and other brilliant investors from the last 80 years or so. And yeah, we're here to- about how to get comfortable with that kind of investing and how to do it on your own. Yeah, and we're, we're, we're basically out to see if we can't uh, get excited about, you know, voting our own money instead of letting our money be voted by people who don't share our own our values. Um, maybe it's worth learning how to do this so that we can put investments in the companies that we really want to see in the world down the road 20 years. And uh, maybe your mutual fund manager doesn't share that same vision with you about what you think is good in the world. So, uh, and, but in that context, by the way, I just want to say we're not um, pitching any specific value set, although I'm sure you're going to hear our values on the show. But um, you can have your own values. Warren Buffett, for example, loves to buy things like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, uh, Dairy Queen, McDonald's. These, uh, Burger King is a, a recent investment. Oh, uh, Dad, did you see that Pepsi is taking out aspartame from Diet Pepsi? Yeah. Interesting, Pretty right? Pretty interesting, yeah. I was so good, and I read the Wall Street Journal. I was so proud of myself. <laughs> it's wonderful. I love it. By the way, on this show, you're going to see, I think, an evolution. You know, probably from both of us on on how we um, how we look at investing and what we do about it. So cool. You're starting to look at the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I mean, I think for me and for a lot of people, it's about starting small and just figuring out how to make this, even in a small way, part of your life. Like, we don't have a lot of time. We generally like being busy people. We don't have a lot of time to spend all day studying something. And I think just starting out with kind of that general knowledge, starting out with some of that, that news information, that information about things that are interesting to us in the business world, that's a good way to start. That's the way I'm trying to start with publicly traded companies. That's a good way to start. And I think it's also really important to know that there's no rush. You don't have to zip through dozens of companies in three days, you know, in order to be an investor. You you just sort of start digging your canyon out. You know, think about the like I'm a Grand Canyon, old Grand Canyon River guide. So I think in terms of being in the canyon, that's a comfortable place. And as long as you're not too near the walls, you're in good shape. So we try to think in terms of going deep into something. I mean, start off real narrow, like an inch wide, but go a mile deep. And going a mile deep doesn't really take that long, Danielle. It's just a matter of doing reading when you have time. And, and more than anything, kind of make it in a discipline. You, you know, 15 minutes before bed, well, you know, reading 10Ks, that'll put you to sleep. And there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of us already do that little 15 minute before bed thing where you're like checking the final stuff on your phone before you turn it on to silent, hopefully, and put it next to you. That's what I do. Um, so I'm just trying to remember to add a little bit of that business reading in. I already used to do some of it because I obviously work with small companies and that's important to me, but I really haven't paid much attention to publicly traded companies. and uh, And so I'm trying to add that into my routine. Well, it really helps to, to try to have fun with this. And and um, and part of having fun with it is not being overwhelmed by the sheer mass amount of data that's out there about public companies. You know, this is really one of the big evolutions of our, our world as investors is that 
when I started back in 1980, the amount of information that was available um, was just a small amount relative today. And it was difficult to access. If you didn't have a lot of money to like pay $50,000 a year to get the value line surveys, you had to go to the library and get them. And that meant all the information was really old and dated. And I mean, my gosh, you had to read like 1300 pages of stuff just to kind of get an idea of what was there. That's crazy. Yeah, you'd have to did be a fanatic. Did you actually do that? Well, no, because it's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> However, Warren Buffett did, and that's probably the difference between Warren and me, is that he really liked this stuff. And he started doing it when he was really young and just digging in. And um, for me, no, when I first started, it was more of a matter of just accessing specific things and digging into them. And um, to do that, like I'd have to write the guys who, you know, who were investment relations, investor relations people at a company. And you'd, you'd give them a call or write them and then they would send you their annual report and their, their SEC filings. And, you know, then you'd get the documents two weeks later and you could start digging into it. And now it's just instantly accessible. So, you know, there's pros and cons to that change in the world. The, the, the obvious wonderful part of this is we have great information we can access. Any of us can now that we've got the Internet and the price of, of the material that we're accessing, which literally used to be $50,000 a year. That was what it costs back in uh, 1980 to get access to this information. And now it's free or very close to it. You could pay for some kind of service that would send you the 10Ks. Yeah, you and the the a year. Yeah, the value line service was is famous. That's what Warren Buffett still uses to this day, I guess. And you know, they'd send you pages like like you'd get as a pilot. You know, you take out the old page and throw it away, and you put in the new page for which oh, new yeah. landing strips are. You'd do that for all these stocks. You know, and, and think about it. They had like. 13 or 1400 pages of stuff on uh, you know on most of the stocks that were publicly traded big enough to bother with um, but it's not remotely the kind of data we have now so the the advantage was you didn't have to look at too much stuff and the disadvantage was hard to get and slow to slow to access and today the advantage is it's hugely easy to get massively easy to get and very inexpensive and um, and the problem with that is there's too much of it yeah, well, you know, 1,300 pages on a topic you're really interested in really isn't a lot. I mean, I've certainly read 1,300 pages and a lot more on comparative religion, you know, which is <laughs> what I studied before law school, and it didn't feel like a chore to me. Um, but, and people like Warren Buffett and people like you, it's not a chore to you guys. It's a little bit of a chore to the rest of us who aren't naturally drawn to it. And so I think... If we can find a way in, if we can find an inroad for people, or maybe you know several that appeal to different kinds of people, this this will be a good thing, and that's what I'm looking for for myself personally. Well, and I so last time we were talking about Whole Foods, I'd love to keep going with that if we can, and, and talk specifically about how we research and how we move on with it. Yeah, and I'd like to I'd like to have you sort of see the fun part of doing the research, you know? So if it was really fun for you to prepare, you know, to compare, let's say, the Protestants with the Catholics or 
All right. Whatever so let me you back compared. Up. Let me back up. What did I you did compare? Not, I like to say comparative religion because it's easy for people to understand what that is in terms of like I wasn't in theology school, which is what a lot of people think of when you say you study religion. Um, comparative religion is easier to understand, but it wasn't. It was not comparative, and Oxford doesn't <laughs> believe in comparative religion, and anybody there will tell you that. So. We did not compare religions. I studied. Well, I'm so glad we're clearing this up. <laughs> and and specifically different religions and the basis of religions and um, and kind of you know early religions and later religions and how they developed and it was really more. I like to call it more like a history of religions. So well, now you know. Well, okay, good. I, I appreciate. I should have known that already. I'm sure I've told you, but it's easy to forget. It sort of, yeah, slid by. And because I say comparative religion, so it's really my own fault. Well, I think this is going to be a challenge for all of us is to figure out how do we make this thing fun, you know? Because if it's not fun, we might not do it. Exactly. Well, we definitely won't do it. That's why there's millions of people who do not invest their own money. <laughs> definitely won't do it. All right, it. Well, let me write this down. Must make this fun. Oh, yeah, make sure you write <laughs> Out, so you don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> well, shoot, that I don't know. To me, obviously, there's there are other aspects of fun than it's just sort of fun to play the game. Well, um, I think it's almost impossible for somebody to whom something is fun to uh, to relate to people who don't think it's fun and to figure out how to make it fun for them. It's very difficult because you don't relate to it. But that's why I'm here. Well, I I love doing this. I, that's what I'm thinking. Like, how's this not fun? But comparing religions is fun. I think it's sort of the same idea. Is that you're you're learning about something you didn't know about before? And any person that likes to learn, I think, is going to love this stuff because you're going to learn about the world that exists out there um, that you may not really understand very well. But when you become an investor, you you necessarily have to understand it. You have to be more of a rational person than regular life requires you to be because you have to really think it through. You have to understand. I think that's right. I think it is. I think that's exactly right. You're learning. We are learning about the world through business. We're learning about our country through business. We're learning about history through business. And I think that's fascinating. I think the difficulty is that we're doing so with extremely dry textual material <laughs> and it's not that fun to read on its own. Um, so well, let's, let's use Whole Foods as a, as a way yeah. of diving into this and seeing if we can't make it fun. Like, like, and, and part of making it fun is to kind of not have to read every word. That's right. And, and that's what of, I was saying last time that as you get into it and as you start to read legal documents, you can start to skip those words in the middle pick out the important ones. All right. So let's let's dive in. Um, we talked last time about, you know, how you go about sort of getting at this information. So let me tell you to just kind of go over to your computer there and go over to Whole Foods Market. Um, and at the bottom of the Whole Foods Market landing page, you'll see company. And in that list of things in company, you'll see investor relations. So click on that. And that will take you to their page, um, which gives you a variety of things to choose from uh, under investor relations. And they've done a nice job of making it really visually attractive, I think, here, <laughs> for what it's worth. And scroll down to the one that says annual reports and click on that. 
So yeah, this one was it was easy to find. Yeah, this is they they make it easy. These guys are not ashamed to uh, to have their information out there. They're not trying to hide anything. When we were looking at Weiss last time, those guys just made it a, a misery to try to figure out about it. And then it turns out they're a completely controlled company by a family that owns two thirds of the stock. So they don't care. And they're not making any effort to help you as a shareholder, which kind of turns me off, right? Because I sort of like companies where the management team thinks about the world the way I do. So um, I'm turned off on Weiss and I'm gonna be interested in looking at Whole Foods. So now we're over at Whole Foods annual reports and you see annual stakeholders report 2014, click on the one that says, you know, 10K, the first one, 10K PDF. And you click on that and um, what will come up is they're filing, they filed this with the SEC. Now the SEC is uh, the Securities Exchange Commission and they were formed by the FDR, uh, the Roosevelt administration back in the 1930s to try to stop the excesses of abuse in the stock market where people would make up stories and lie about their company and they would hustle people. Um, and through the, the 1920s, sort of the roaring 20s, as more and more people made money in the stock market, which was taking off like a rocket, um, abuses just piled in because there was no regulation. And people who didn't know any better bought stocks from people who were hustling them and totally fraudulent purchases. And then in 1929 with the crash, um, a lot of people lost all of their money. You know, many people who couldn't afford to do so. And so one of the, the big, huge changes in American life was that the federal government decided it had a role uh, to play to protect the little guy. <clears throat> and up, to, up till that point, it was up to the little guy to protect the little guy. And if you did stupid things like buy stuff from an idiot who was trying to sell them to you with, by lying to you, that was going to be on you. But now um, in 1930s, FDR said, OK, we're going to we're going to protect the little guy from this sort of abuse. We're going to create a policeman um, in the form of a regulator. And so they did it. And that uh, group, the Securities Exchange Commission, has been uh, given the responsibility of trying to make sure that when you see information out there uh, about a company that, that, and here's the interesting part, that um, the company is on the hook for making sure it's true. That's essentially what you're gonna get. In other words, in spite of the fact that this, the idea was to protect the little guy, the SEC does not protect the little guy. The SEC's job is to just prosecute people if they lie to you on these reports that they make. So they can still lie like crazy. Deck the little guy. Yeah, it's helpful. Right, because presumably the larger guys have the resources and the know-how and the sophistication to protect themselves. It's the little guy who is not sitting in Wall Street in New York who doesn't have that information. Right, and that was particularly true back in the 1930s. Uh, substantially less true today. Um, today, pretty much little guys have all the information that the big guys have, which is pretty cool. And we get it at the same time, which is really cool, so that there's no real advantage to being a big guy anymore. Um, and actually, Warren Buffett's made the point that it's getting harder and harder to be a big guy, um, that it's really loaded with disadvantages now. So little guys are starting to get an advantage. And one of these advantages that came through the SEC is that everyone has to file a similar kind of document to tell you about their company. 
which is a really huge advantage. And, and the, the second piece is that they have to sign it and say it's all true and they're going to go to jail if it isn't. And um, as a result, lawyers are deeply involved, as you know, in these kinds of things. And um, and they try to make it, they, they really, their job is to make sure that the CEO tells you everything. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to see what Whole Foods is going to tell us. Now, in particular, what we're looking for here is a shortcut to deciding that um, this company has some sort of durable competitive advantage. Remember Charlie's four things, it, Charlie Munger's four things are that you need to be capable of understanding. And we've decided we're kind of, you know, we're stipulated last time that we're capable of understanding the grocery business. And um, the second thing Charlie said, once we're capable of understanding it is, can we figure out if this company has a durable competitive advantage? And if so, what is it? And third, the management team should be talented and 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 honest and, and have integrity. And fourth, this thing should be a, a fair price. So those are the four critical things. Now, we've already stipulated the first one. We're capable of understanding the grocery business. We go to grocery stores. We buy stuff. We've read a little bit about Weiss and and it seemed, you know, we can figure something out about this. So we're moving on now to Whole Foods and try to figure out what's their durable competitive advantage. Do they even have one? So let's start with uh, with just going into the 10K here. And I'm going to show you how a company tells you what their competitive advantage looks like. Before we go straight to Whole Foods, would you mind just listing the competitive advantages one more time? I know we talked about them um, when we were going through Charlie's four principles. Sure. Let's let's go through them. We, we think that there's basically five major competitive advantages that, um, and, and there's obviously more. This is, you know, a, a gross generalization to say there's only five. But most of the companies will fall into one of these five or more. The first and real big advantage companies have is a brand. This is, this means that, um, they control some mind share. They're, they have you thinking about them in terms of their product rather than the industry generic. Uh, Coca-Cola, I'm going to go buy Cokes or I'm going to go buy Pepsi. I, you know, I'm going to send I'm going to send somebody to the store and pick up Cokes. I'm not going to send them to pick up colas. So there's a brand there. Um, so I want identify to buy a brand. You know what you're going to get when you buy that particular product or from that store. Exactly. You're you're going there because you're going to get a certain thing like McDonald's is a classic uh, case of a company that started to have a problem with its brand back in the turn of about 2003. You know, the idea of McDonald's is you go there, it's a simple little menu, and you get a real clean restaurant, real clean bathrooms, real fast service, you know, and that's, that's so much, and you know, really the same exact food wherever you go. That's so much part of the McDonald's brands. Is, and so branding is about getting the same thing. And in 2003, what happened is McDonald's restaurants started to be not so clean um, and the service not so fast. And man alive, it started to go downhill in a hurry because if you don't get what you expect, you stop going to the brand. Yeah, pretty quickly. All right. Second thing is, um, and by the way, a brand moat takes a long time to build. But once you've built it, because it takes a long time to build, it's very hard for somebody else to come out and take it away from you. You can throw it away fast, like McDonald's was doing, but it's very hard for, say, Jack in the Box to just start up a company and just take over from McDonald's if McDonald's continues to support its brand. 
very difficult to compete with them. All right, the second big one is a switching moat. And this is a moat um, similar to what Microsoft has and IBM has and Oracle. Um, these are all companies where once you've invited them in, you know, as part of your business, you use their products, um, they get in so deep into what you're doing that it's really painful to think about switching over to a different company. So like I'm all on Apple. I've got Apple, I'm looking at two screens here. I've got a, a, a notebook computer. I've got my phone is an iPhone. So it would be a pain for me to switch over to an Android system. So I just- So it's worth sticking with something, even if maybe it's not quite as good as a competitor, just because switching is so painful and probably expensive. Yep. And whereas Apple's brand is also a big secrets moat, you know, they, they do marvelous things with their stuff, um, which we'll come to. Microsoft is an example of a company that almost never innovates. They're, <laughs> <laughs> they're always second. I'm sure they would hate to hear you say that. <laughs> but I think Bill Gates did it on purpose, you know? What's that? They just copy everybody else? Yeah, they copy the good stuff. And, and the reason that they can do Except that- Except for the Zoom. Well, they make lots of mistakes. And it's quite funny, especially when they try to innovate. They really come up with some messes. But in general, what they do is they see a strong market and then they start to leverage the fact that they've got a big switching moat. So once you've decided you're all Microsoft stuff, all those computers, those Microsoft NT systems, your whole network, it's very difficult to get them out of there, all your software. So they have a great moat and they can continue to, uh, to bring in new products into that switching moat and that company will buy them because they're already there. Yep, IBM same way, Oracle same way. Um, secrets moat is the third one. That's a sort of uh, 3M, you know, we figured out how we make this sticky stuff not stick to your paper so you can get, uh, you know, little yellow sticky pads and, um, and all kinds of adhesives that 3M works with. Coca-Cola has a secrets moat when it, it, that it developed for trade secrets. So, you know, and the pharmaceuticals do a lot of patenting of drugs, and those are moats that protect them from competition for the life of the patent. Um, so secrets moat is a real strong one. The fourth one is almost a pure monopoly called a toll bridge. Um, this moat means that you can't get this thing any other way. So, for example, utility companies that are public like Laclede Gas in... Uh, in St. Louis, they have monopoly on all the natural gas uh, supply, power supply to all of St. Louis. And then Laclede went out and acquired Kansas City's gas, and then they acquired Birmingham, Alabama's gas. And just on and on like this, they've developed uh, a, uh, a, this huge moat of, of being the only thing in town if you want gas. Um, PG&E in California is the only way you can get solar and or get uh, power unless you want to put solar panels on your roof. So um, typically a toll bridge moat is is uh, just the best moat that there is. Um, Burlington Northern, for example, is one of the one of only two railroads that'll take coal out of Wyoming and um, and take stuff from Seaport to Chicago. So toll bridge moats. Third and the last one is a price moat, which doesn't mean the low price. It means you you have the low price. But what it really means is you have the low price because you're the low cost producer of that product or the low cost distributor of that product. So for example, Walmart famously could, could sell you a hammer 
cheaper than your local hardware store in a small town in the Midwest could buy the hammer from its suppliers. So it could, in other words, this guy's wholesale price at the little hardware store was higher than Walmart's retail price. And that's why those little hardware stores all went out of business. Same thing happened with the local corner pharmacy, gone because Walmart came in and could buy these drugs cheaper than those guys. They could sell them cheaper than those guys could buy them. So a pricing moat is a really powerful moat. One of my favorite pricing moat companies is CF Industries. They have the best cost of acquiring nitrogen fertilizer of any, or the nitrogen raw materials of any company in the industry. And so as prices for fertilizer go down, these guys are ultimately the last man standing because they're the last guy who's making money uh, with lower and lower prices. So, so pricing it's kind of a moat about uh, sourcing. Yeah, moat about sourcing or how cheaply can you make this thing? Mm-hmm. You know, so Costco, Bed Bath & Beyond, Walmart are all sort of pricing moats. Target was kind of a pricing moat and then it realized it's really gonna have trouble competing on the low end and they sort of went middle end um, with branding. They went with brand. Yeah, exactly. They, they could not hang in there at those low prices. So they give you a good quality, better quality at a price. So those are the big five that, that we look at. And so if we're looking at Whole Foods now, we want to kind of see, all right, are any of these things happening here? Do we see any of these moats? So that's what we're looking for, okay? Well, I would say that there's brand, You know that it's going to be the same quality, same kind of look, same kind of store, same kind of people working in the store at any Whole Foods you go to around the country. That's what I expect. And that's what I've found. It's also roughly the same products in every store. They also do a whole local product thing, but generally like they have their Whole Foods products and they have all the same, um, you know, like makeup and face and all those kinds of uh, supplements, products, those are all the same in every store. I know that if I, you know, I'm taking my fish oil, I can go to a Whole Foods anywhere and go find my fish oil. Yeah, you know, I was I was um, used to Whole Foods in California. You know, Whole Foods over by where Elena is and Hillcrest and, and um, up in the Bay Area and so on. And man, I got out here and, and we're, we're way south of Atlanta on a, on a farm. And I started really wanting to go to a Whole Foods, just aching to go up there and get some, you know. You're addicted. I was addicted, yeah. And this is very much a brand kind of a thing. Um, and all there's Needs a- Not being met by the local grocery stores. No, and I, and I was really trying, you know, down here to get it done. Um, so I drove an hour and a half. <laughs> That's crazy. Up to the Whole Foods store and- um, and I was so disappointed. I mean, the whole idea of a brand is that exactly what you said, you get what you got. That, yeah. That's what you want. And so, you know, the Whole Foods brand is largely to me around their produce section. You know, that's where they really cranked it up and, um, and made a much more, more appealing um, like vegetables and fruit section than what, what you'd see in a normal grocery store. And so when I went to the Whole Foods up there in Atlanta, it was like, oh my gosh, this is just a normal grocery store. This place looks like a Publix. Tell me what that means. How did it look like a Publix? They had the same stuff 
Publix has the same stuff the same, that Whole Foods well, had. I mean, obviously, every grocery store has oranges and apples and cherries and zucchinis. So you yeah. mean the quality? The quality was just as bad as a Publix. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and the, the brands were the same. Like the same brand of like Driscoll's strawberries. and I mean, they didn't have anything special. That's what the shock was. It was like... There, wow, I've just walked into a not a special place and I drove 90 minutes to get here. So guess what? I'm not driving back. Hmm. Right? And it was a shocker to me. And I actually was so surprised. I asked to speak to the produce manager. Of course you did. Of course I, I did. Imagine. <laughs> and the produce manager also did not meet my high standards for who's running the section at Whole Foods. I mean, I've found it over and over. Whole Foods people who are running their section yeah. are really well informed. Absolutely. And they're really good they're at passionate about what they're doing. Exactly. They're good at customer service. They know how to convey that passion. This guy didn't make it. He just did not make it that in that regard. That is so interesting and surprising. So, hmm. Well, does that does that say something about the Atlanta store in particular? I, it does it say something about the company as a whole? Is it both? Well, it's a really, really important question for anybody who's thinking about investing in Whole Foods. And since I was a Whole Foods shareholder at the time and had bought into it with certain expectations, I was so surprised. I went back and liquidated. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, part of it was I, you know, I'd made a profit on the position and it was a bit of a speculative buy in that I sort of manufactured. Um, I sort of manufactured my margin of safety by using some options and stuff. But I just went, dang, this is immediately not meeting my expectations. Hmm. And I have high expectations because I've been around Whole Foods for a lot of years, but in a different place. And now on the other side of the coin, while I was talking to the produce manager, the manager of the bakery department came zipping over there because I think they knew they had a weakness there. In the produce section. Yeah. And she came running over and took over the interview. Oh, really? That's telling. Yeah. That's telling. Yeah. Because if the produce manager was on his or her game, they no other manager would come and usurp that kind of conversation. No. Not in any Whole Foods I've ever been in. Yeah. You know, which includes, you know, two big ones in New York and several in California. So here we're dealing with something that's a little off. And, and what she told me was, we're just having a really tough time sourcing the fruit and vegetables the way we would in California or New York. And I'm, I'm not sure what the problem was. I, I didn't, you know, we didn't spend all day at it. Um, but there was definitely a problem. And they, they understood that. And so I, I didn't, and here, in answer to your question, I don't know whether it's a problem that is facing the entire company as they expand, right? So they've, they've been- They are expanding a lot. Yeah. I that. Yeah. It's hard to keep up with that sometimes. Yeah, I mean, you look at companies that expand that have a huge customer service component, a lot of really passionate people, and you have to recognize that if they're expanding too fast, they're not going to have enough great people. Yeah. And I and maybe that's what's happening. Anyway, that's what I thought about it. And I came home and said, I'm gonna, I'm getting out of this until I really understand this business better. Have you been back to that Whole Foods since then? No. I'm very curious. No way am I driving 90 minutes to go up there to a public. It's almost your responsibility to see if it's gotten better. How long ago was that? It's like six months ago. So that's enough time for them to make a fix. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right, I'm, I'm going to go back. Interested. 
right, I'll go back and we'll, I'll report back to you. Okay, good. I like it. All right, cool. Yeah, you know, it, I'm glad we're talking about these sort of anecdotal um, experiences because it it's probably not an isolated experience. Probably other people are having the same experiences. And if your moat is a brand moat, that really matters. Yes, it's a massively important thing. As opposed to like a switching moat in which they probably don't care too much if a few people are unhappy. <laughs> it's like, oh, we're sorry you're unhappy, but you can't get rid of us anyway. Good luck with that. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's let's dive into the document here real quick and see. So we're going to go um, onto the Whole Foods uh, Investor Relations into the annual reports and click on the 10K under the 2014 annual report. And now you're faced with this this document that is uh, created for the SEC. And just scroll on down and you'll see that uh, if you get down a couple pages, you'll get into the uh, into the table of contents and it says business, item one. Now, here's the cool thing. The SEC has standardized all of these things. So they all have the same numbering system. So item one is all 10Ks is a business, is the business operation. So let's go down to page one, just scroll down and you'll see it says part one, item one, business on page one. Now, what we're gonna do for fun here is we're gonna scan down and see if we can find where Whole Foods is gonna tell us what their durable competitive advantage is. So I'm just gonna skip on down. Here we go, I'm scanning, scanning. Um, okay, there they're telling us. The first bit is uh, about us in general. The second bit is about the industry overview about, you know, grocery stores and natural and organic food, then their purpose and core value, and then, oh, page two, our quality standards and differentiated product offering. That word differentiated is the keyword here. So I'm scanning oh, for it. I see it. So this is a heading on page two. Yeah. You've scanned through all this other stuff. Yep. And this heading is called our quality standards and differentiated product offering. Yep. And what they're saying here is that, it, I'll just read you the first sentence. We believe our high quality standards differentiate our stores from other supermarkets. There they are. They're just saying we have standards that are better than anybody in the industry and that's what makes us special. Now, everything past this point is going to be explaining what they mean by that. So right away, we're down into the, into the nitty gritty, but we can see really quickly that Whole Foods is trying to tell the shareholder uh, or prospective shareholder, why they're better than other people or what differentiates us from other stores. And we scroll down and we see that, oh, they've got these major headings. And the first one is we have exclusive brands. And we think that that's essential to our differentiating strategy. Then it so, says- so this, You're getting now into the subheadings, still sub under quality standards and differentiated product offering. The first subheading, which is in italics here, is exclusive brands. Yep. So I'm just gonna read down the subheadings real quick and, and, and just say them in a kind of a sentence. So we at Whole Foods thinks what makes us special, what differentiates us, what gives us a durable competitive advantage is that we have our exclusive brands, that we have a, a program called Health Starts Here where we're positioned as America's healthiest grocery store. That's a brand statement right there. We are America's healthiest grocery store. Third, we are only using responsibly grown produce and flowers. Fourth, we have a whole trade guarantee for products that are sourced from developing companies that meet our standards of wages and working conditions for workers. 
This is a brand that people are that 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 Whole Foods has developed. We are committed to buying local, um, and 24% of our produce came from local farms. So this is a program that that is structured as a brand uh, builder. Here's animal welfare. So we're we're really all about rating uh, the the food we're selling in terms of how the animals are treated. Seafood sustainability, GMO transparency, whole body standards, and eco scale. So all of these, I'm not going to read them all, but that's what Whole Foods is laying out there to say, this is what differentiates us. And almost all of these are branding. Almost all of them. Okay? Almost all of them. Now, I'm going to tell you that somewhere in, it, somewhere in here, we're going to dig into, and I hope that I can find exactly where it is I read it, but I can tell you that part of what they're doing that is not just branding is that they believe that they can handle produce and fruit better than anybody in the world. And in essence, they have what they think is a secrets moat that based on trade secrets, they can have tremendous amount of vegetable and fruit SKUs and still not be throwing food away like crazy. So this is actually very hard for other stores to do. And when you go into other grocery stores that compete with Whole Foods, you'll see inevitably that their produce and fruit section are much, much smaller. And that's why I was so shocked at that Atlanta Whole Foods. It was not up to speed, right? Because that's explicitly one of their competitive advantages. It's explicitly a competitive advantage. Now, I don't know if they- added in that store. Yeah, and I don't know if they stopped writing about it. Um, I, and I honestly read it so many years ago, I can't remember exactly where I read it. But um, I mean, there's so many elements to making this this thing work that I've read about and understand that um, you have to kind of dig out of their, their 10K. But for starters, we just start to have fun with this by looking at a company's 10K and trying to find where do they tell us what's unique about them? Because if they don't, well, that's a pretty good sign that either they don't know what they're doing, which is bad, or they don't have a distinctive advantage in the marketplace. You know, So for example, when we read about Weiss, all we're reading about is they've got a loyalty program. That's it, dude, really? That's, that's what makes you a thrilling and exciting thing to be invested in? So not too much, so I'm not that interested. Whereas Whole Foods, as they, they dive into this, they start to unfold this onion of things that they do, and you start to realize, wow, if I had $18 billion to go compete with Whole Foods, which is its current market cap, I don't know if I could do it. Well, there probably comes a point with Whole Foods where it's so big and it has so many uh, exclusive partners and, and sourcing that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to have the same quality of products because where are you going to get them? If Whole Foods is already under contract and they have an exclusive contract with, I don't know, Snake River Farms, which is a great um, meat producer, it, it can be very difficult to compete. Yeah, exactly. You're going to have a lot of trouble sourcing out to the kinds of places that these guys have developed. And, um, and they're, they're working hard. You can see that the company works hard on that strategy that makes it very difficult if you believe in these things to switch over to somebody else. So there's kind of a switching mode as well. Not literally as nasty as it would be to switch off of Apple over to Microsoft, but 
certainly um, in terms of your own value set, you're going to make a lot fewer companies you could switch over to because of these very specific things that they do to build their brand. So well, interestingly, I think small grocery stores can compete with Whole Foods in a way that a supermarket can't. And they, I noticed, use the word supermarket in what they do, in their description of what they do. There are several independent natural foods grocery stores here in Boulder that compete very well with Whole Foods. And they have excellent sourcing. And they're able to compete because they don't have, they don't have to supply however many stores Whole Foods has around the country. You know, they're supplying one, two, three stores maybe. Um, and they can then work with smaller purveyors um, and maybe even provide better quality because of that. So it's interesting thinking about putting $18 billion into a huge company. Maybe that would be harder to do than to just start a small little grocery store. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And, um, and, then, and then let's kind of take that to the next step. So we look at this as an owner or a potential owner and just think, all right, I've got an opportunity to own this $18 billion store here, um, which I could buy outright right now, or I could uh, take the same $18 billion and start building something that is gonna use these $18 billion, right? And I can start small. I can begin with a small store in Boulder and I'll put another one in Hillcrest in San Diego, and I'll put another one in uh, like Noe Valley or something in San Francisco. And I'm just gonna start small and begin to build this up. Does that sound overly dangerous to Whole Foods, do you think? Well, if your goal is to build it into a supermarket, a national supermarket chain, I think that might be difficult. I think that might not be so dangerous to Whole Foods. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe, maybe in those specific markets it could be, though. Well, the thing is, if you're real small, how big of an impact are you going to have on me? If I own Whole Foods and you put in this little store in Boulder, right? I mean, Boulder loves its natural foods and it loves its local businesses. So I think they're dangerous. I don't, I don't know the numbers, but I know they do very well. Well, here's something you would have to do then if you were going to look at this as an investment. You'd say... You'd go over to Whole Foods or you'd try to break out the Whole Foods Boulder store and see if the impact of these smaller stores is having any effect on the big store, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like you look at Wild Oats back in the day, which was started in Boulder and was they were growing into a national chain. Whole Foods bought them to get them out of the market. Which was going to be my next point. Oh. <laughs> so as as you build up your competitive store, you may be taking a bit of market share away from my big old huge store. But at some point, if you become a significant competitive uh, uh, threat, I can buy you. Mm -hmm. I can buy you out because I am so large. And that is exactly what you said is right. Whole Foods bought out wild oats. It actually went into an almost to a uh, to a there was a, a hearing at the federal government level that went on for about a year about whether or not this was going to make Whole Foods a monopoly, which tells you how crazy the federal government can get when you've got all of these other little stores starting up all over the place who are, you know, oriented toward the same market and they're afraid of, uh, of Whole Foods becoming a monopoly. So um, it, I think it's just really uh, an important thing to understand as an investor how powerful it is to be big. Um, because of what you can do with the cash flow that you have coming in if you have a lot of cash flow coming in. 
which by the way, takes me to the next thing I think we ought to show is that next time around, let's, let's do Whole Foods again, but this time I wanna show you how you would know that the company probably has a moat. How would, how would you know it probably has one? How you would suspect that it probably has a moat by looking at just a few key numbers that we call the big four growth rates and a couple other numbers about return on, on uh, investment that by looking at just a handful of numbers here, we can get a pretty good idea about whether this moat exists or not. So let's start there next time. That sounds great. Okay. I didn't know that you could tell that there was a moat through numbers. Yeah. So sweet. would that even be a better place to start instead of reading the text in a 10K? It's actually usually where we start. Oh, interesting. Yep, I just like to come right to the numbers and see. So first you get an idea, oh, this is an interesting company. I liked it, I, I went in and shopped there. Now immediately to the numbers and see if these like six numbers are the way they should be. And if they are, it says some kind of moat exists. And then, then our, our job is, oh, okay, they've got a moat. Now we've just got to figure out if it's durable. Okay. Cool. All right, that sounds Let's great. do that next time. All right, everybody, thanks so much. Until then, time to go play. See ya. Hey, you guys, thanks for listening to Invested, the rule number one podcast. If you like us, please subscribe, please and leave a review for us on iTunes. Uh, by the way, you can get our notes and links for this podcast and post comments about this show and uh, also get more information about how to invest on your own by going to investedpodcast.com. Um, by the way, everything, this is important, everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and it isn't to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for entertainment and education only. I, I got to tell you, I really hope you enjoyed it. And I know Danielle does too. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.